This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Vermont Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning re-election. Well, uh, thank you for that. I'm happy to be here and uh, looking forward to another couple of years of, of work. Lieutenant Governor, even as you won re-election with almost 60% of the vote and Bernie Sanders won with almost 70%, Republican Governor Phil Scott defeated Democratic nominee Christine Hallquist, who would have been the first openly transgender governor in the United States, by 15 points. Why is that? Well, I think there's a lot of different factors. Uh, in Vermont, much of uh, a significant factor for a lot of voters is not just knowing who their le- the, the candidates are or name recognition, but it's actually sort of a fundamental uh, familiarity, uh, for lack of a better term. And so I think both two years ago and this election cycle, Governor Scott and I uh, had been around the state much more uh, just in our roles as either representative, senator, uh, lieutenant governor over the years. And so people feel uh, a familiarity, a comfort level with both of us in that regard. And it is hard, whether it was my opponent or Christine, uh, to, in a six-month or five-month period, uh, really shake the hands of and have face-to-face time with uh, you know 400,000 people in Vermont. You can do a lot through TV ads, and I think in larger states where people don't expect to actually meet the candidates or know the candidates, you can come from nowhere, spend a lot on TV and radio, and people just sort of think that's the way it works, and therefore I'm going to know what I know from those short commercials. Uh, it's a little different here, and uh, so I think that's a big factor. What is your relationship with the Republican governor? Plenty of respect for him. He's an incredibly uh, gentle and thoughtful individual. On a, a political and policy level, he chose two years ago uh, to tell me that I would not be a part of his cabinet uh, and that I would not really be a part of the um, the administration as a, as a process in government. And uh, that's his decision. He's the governor. I'm the lieutenant governor. So I accepted that and have worked hard across the state to uh, help people understand what's happening, help people understand how they can help shape what's happening through their communications with representatives and senators and even the governor's office. Uh, but as a whole, um, we, we basically learn when he is out of town so that I am acting governor in those moments. Uh, I was involved in one policy discussion he had when we first came into office two years ago around federal immigration policy and state resources and state enforcement of federal policy. And I agreed with the governor, as did our attorney general and others, that we could uh, pull away from using our law enforcement for federal purposes. Uh, but other than that one policy, uh, he's chosen to run uh, government from the fifth floor of the uh, what's called the pavilion, the building next door to the state house. And the legislature and my office have been not overly uh, reached out to by his office uh, as, as policymakers and as a unified uh, government. 
And not being a part of the governor's cabinet, what work have you done as lieutenant governor for the past two years? What progress have you made with the legislature? Well, I've certainly worked closely. I served in the House for 14 years. I've served in the Senate for four years. But I've already had a lot of relationships with many members of each of the two bodies. And so uh, continuing those conversations when it comes to renewable energy, when it's come to uh, cannabis reform and criminal justice reform, uh, with health care issues, which we have a lot more work to do, uh, all of those conversations are conversations I have with legislators on a daily basis uh, during the legislative session. And then really one of the things I've continued to do as lieutenant governor that uh, I had been doing as a representative and then senator is actually doing a lot of uh, work outside the state house, trying to move the balance of power from uh, elected folks talking to elected folks about what's right for the state to really having more of the general public engage in the process, talking to their representatives and senators uh, through phone, email, uh, and social media, and direct contact at coffee shops and local stores, uh, which in Vermont people have that access, uh, but to to really continue to be almost an ambassador for democracy and really bring uh, everyday voices uh, back into the process in a way that we've lost with corporate financing of elections and just the power of, of wealth in the political process. So you mentioned health care. Arguably, healthcare was the issue of this election for Democrats. Vermont is particularly notable on this issue since your state took a shot at single payer Green Mountain Care, but the effort ended up being killed by the Democratic governor. What's the state of healthcare in your state right now and efforts to implement single payer? Well, uh, there's still a lot of uh, community interest in moving towards a single payer system or a universal healthcare system that is not bifurcated by work or individual plans or you could lose your uh, health insurance if you change your jobs. So there is still a lot of interest in the state. Uh, the conversation certainly was tempered by uh, the former governor's action to, to end that progress. There, is a, there are a lot of people who are looking at ways we can move back in that direction, whether it's a universal primary care model that can then be expanded, whether it's uh, Medicare for all, where the age could be lowered sequentially year by year uh, to then eventually incorporate everybody into one universal system. Uh, so there's there are definitely a lot of people in the state talking about uh, how we can move forward in this regard. And even, you know, the side where we talked about the cost, the reality is there are, are key things that have to happen to address costs. One is really looking at unnecessary procedures and saving money there. Two is investing more in primary care where you can actually either prevent or detect ailments much earlier, which would mean a much less expensive course of action uh, to remedy those ailments. And three, of course, with the universal system, you remove a lot of the administrative cost, but you don't eliminate all of it. Uh, so all of those, those things combined are conversations people are still having. Many of us think it's one of the strongest economic development tools we could have in Vermont. Because if we had a universal healthcare system, there are folks who might want to be entrepreneurs who currently don't feel they can leave their job to start a new business because they would lose their health care, that they could actually move to Vermont and have health care while getting those first few years of a new startup off the ground. So you were serving in the legislature when Green Mountain Care was attempted. Could you walk us through why that effort failed, especially given that it was under a Democratic governor? 
Well, I think uh, it's important to recognize uh, we sometimes get into tribal camps where the world is all one party or all another, and each of those two parties think in a monolithic manner. Uh, that Democratic governor had started out saying and continued to say throughout his tenure uh, he really didn't want any broad-based taxes to uh, be, be touched or expanded. Uh, and I think basically at the end, he got cold feet. Most legislators had passed the law, were supportive of the law, and uh, he pulled the plug. I mean, there's not really any other way around uh, discussing that reality. Uh, one of the interesting pieces of those conversations uh, that I think needed to continue to happen is asking people to reflect on how much of their total income do they now pay for health insurance. It could either be as a uh, someone engaged in the Affordable Care Act. It could be someone, uh, if you include their co-pays or their private insurance purchasing, and it could even include employers that provide it. I had employers who would say to me, there's no way I could afford a 12% payroll tax if that's what it's going to be. And I would ask them, well, how much right now, if you provide health insurance to your employees, what percentage of your payroll is that health insurance cost? And they would say, well, I don't know. And I said, well, then how do you know whether you could afford 12% or not if you don't really even already know that you're currently paying 11 or 15 or 9 or 18% uh, for the current plan that you're providing to your employees? And they didn't really have much to say. So one of the conversations I think we have to have and continue to ask the employers who get concerned about an employer payroll tax is, and how much is it costing you today as a percentage? And I don't think that conversation has happened uh, as well as it could. And I think that would help this conversation move forward. Even if single payer did pass the legislature now, it would most likely be vetoed by Governor Scott. When do you think that single payer will be politically feasible again in your state? Will there be a real window of opportunity in the coming years? Well, I think there's a couple of factors that are going to play into that, and no one can ever read entirely the crystal ball. But the next presidential election will have a tremendous impact on the feasibility of a universal or single payer healthcare scenario in Vermont. Because you need waivers from the federal government uh, to carry out some aspects of this. And if Donald Trump is president again, then uh, I think the chances of anything happening uh, until that is over, which would be six years from now, uh, it would be very, very slim. On the other hand, if a uh, Democrat wins who is supportive and is prepared to either sign waivers or even better, also help with some transition costs, because on the federal level, $100 million of, of transition money is a very small number on the federal level, even though it's a very big number in Vermont. And I don't know that that's the number, but I'm just saying support from the federal level would also uh, be a potential help in this situation. And if it were someone like Bernie Sanders or some of the other candidates who support Medicare for All, uh, I think that would uh, accelerate the opportunity in Vermont. Also in Vermont in two years, we may well have a new governor, uh, whether this governor runs again uh, or not. Uh, I know earlier we talked about the success that he had as uh, uh, winning this time. But if you really look at his numbers, they were not nearly as impressive as one could expect them to have been, given his past support and given examples in the past where a first-term incumbent was running for re-election. Uh, the governor's support was not as strong as, uh, as it appears 
And so I think there's a real chance that there will be a different governor and a different president, and both of those would bode well for the potential of a universal single-payer system. So looking a bit more at your own politics, you are the only the only progressive party lieutenant governor in the country. What does that mean? Well, uh, in, in some ways, it means that there's a reflection that the general population of Vermont, but I would argue it's actually happening across the country as well, is moving uh, towards an acceptance that maybe there need to be more choices uh, than just the two parties. Uh, I think there's a lot of voters out there that are tired of corporate money uh, influencing politics as much as it is, uh, and I've never taken a corporate donation through my 20 years of, of campaigning and serving. And so uh, I think the general population is getting more and more frustrated by the current two parties. Uh, I do run, just for clarity, I do run in the Democratic primary in order to alleviate the uh, three-way voting conundrum that uh, that gets presented sometimes by third parties running for office that both the other party, uh, whichever one it may be that is closer to the third party in, in, in philosophy, will exploit as, quote, a spoiler argument, but also voters themselves have a hard time sometimes if they think, well, I do want that, that candidate that's closer to me, but if that means I'm going to elect the candidate that's farthest from me with my vote, that's an, that's an understandable frustration. So I do run in the Democratic primary. I get the write-in on the progressive side, uh, and then I run as a progressive slash Democrat. And so I think it means uh, a number of different things from sound strategy for people across the country who want to build uh, third voices to think strategically within the system and how it allows or doesn't allow for that to happen. And over time, uh, then more doors will open. For more folks. And at this point, uh, as you state, I'm the only person with a third party label who is serving as lieutenant governor. I think right now I'm the highest serving third party official in the country, but I'm also the highest serving state office holder uh, in Vermont as a Democrat. So uh, I, I have multiple hats on, which in, 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 in practical senses doesn't mean a lot because once you're elected, you actually represent everybody whether they voted for you or not. And I think we've come to an era right now under the Trump presidency and, and the Republican majorities in the House and Senate where they felt that they only had to really represent and work towards goals that would appease the people that voted for them, as opposed to recognizing that running with party labels helps voters uh, get a better feel for who you might be when you're running for office, but that once you're serving, your job is actually... Uh, to serve everybody in the state, to represent everybody in the state. Uh, and so I sometimes maybe downplay the significance of the progressive label, uh, but I do think it's important we, we uphold the tradition of public service and what our jobs are once we're elected. So given the far-right Trump presidency and Republican Congress, soon to be only Republican Senate, what has and what can Vermont do in the future to fight the federal assault on civil rights and liberties? Well, we're already looking at both legislation and constitutional amendments, in particular around uh, women's reproductive freedom and choice, uh, because if the, the Supreme Court were to change or reverse, uh, particularly obviously Roe versus Wade, then uh, we want to make sure we maintain uh, 100% of that uh, individual autonomy as we currently have. Uh, but a second piece has to do with funding, and there are aspects of funding that the state 
can fill some holes, but we can't fill them all. The federal government has far more resources in terms of funding of uh, various equality measures. Uh, and there are um, concerns as well, not just in women's reproductive freedom, but in criminal justice reform. And in Vermont, frankly, we have been leading far beyond whether anything the federal government would contemplate, whether it was under President Trump or a President Clinton, in uh, juvenile justice and reform there, where, you know, there are folks who do make bad decisions when they're younger. And if it's a particularly small bad decision, I think most people say, okay, you get a second chance. But we have seen folks that have made a medium-sized bad decision who then, for the rest of their lives, uh, are saddled with that. So what criminal justice reform will you be pursuing in this legislative session? Well, we still have further to go on cannabis reform with respect to uh, not only changing that law to allow for a a legal uh, system of regulated purchase and sales for adult use, uh, but with that, there's also uh, cleaning the records of those who, under past war on drugs uh, infractions, uh, to expunge or clean up those lower level and maybe even some low mid level uh, records to free up folks to have a better opportunity. There's also uh, banning the box, uh, where we, I believe, passed a law to remove the box on on state. Uh, hiring practices for state jobs. And for those that don't know, sometimes employers have a box that says, you know, do you have a felony on your record? And you have to check off yes, because if you don't, you're lying. And there are employers who, as soon as that is checked off yes, they put you in the outbox. You know, you're not going to get offered a, an interview or a conversation or a discussion. Well, nobody has said you can't have that conversation. You can't ask them that in the interview. But if in just filling out the application for the job, you immediately get X'd off, it doesn't give that personal connection and that opportunity for someone to look at you in the eye and learn, oh, you are uh, understanding of the mistake you made or you are ready to make right by society, etc. So banning the box, at least for state jobs, uh, we have done, uh, I would like to see it outlawed for um, 95% of our hiring uh, opportunities out there. I mean, there may be something where it's important to, to, for the job to truly know if you have a felony in your background or a felony in a particular topic. Uh, so those are some, and we've done a lot of work in Vermont. I think we're pretty vanguard compared to a lot of the country with really reducing the inmate population and which crimes uh, end up putting you in jail. I know nationally there's also a lot of conversation about bail reform and the number of people who are incarcerated because they can't meet bail, whereas, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world can come up with a million or three million to be out and free until their case happens, while a low-income person for a very minor infraction ends up in jail, loses their job because they can't leave jail to go do their job, all because they can't come up with much less 500000 or 5000 excuse me, or $500. Uh, that is a real problem. 
Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day, I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And what are the Democratic and Progressive Party's other major legislative priorities going into this session? I think uh, both parties in Vermont would have uh, climate change and renewable energy high up on the list. We've talked about universal health care. We've talked about criminal justice reform. Uh, there's a lot around uh, consumer protection uh, and uh, societal protections, environmental issues in Vermont. Uh, we have clean water issues that we need to invest in. I think with respect to renewable energy and climate change, uh, folks are really starting to talk a lot about transportation as one of the main contributors to uh, fossil fuel consumption and whether there's adjustments we can make there from uh, either a carbon dividend or investments in mass transportation, investments in park and rides, investments in alternative transportation, bike paths, et cetera, that could be improved. Uh, as we have a very short timeline uh, with this issue, as we all know from the recent climate report. There are issues around uh, consumer protection. As I mentioned, we have uh, a law that we passed last year that the governor vetoed that would hold corporations that pollute uh, accountable for the medical testing uh, of those people who live within the plume of that pollution. In Vermont, we had a a groundwater contamination issue with PFOA and PFOS in southern Vermont. And uh, right now, taxpayers are on the hook for those people's health care when it really should be the companies, especially when they knew the uh, the toxicity of the product that they were then putting out in the air or putting out in the water. Uh, there, The list goes on and on and on, but uh, those are some of the hot-button issues. I think carbon sequestration in soil uh, and agriculture's potential to work with climate change as well as produce value-added products uh, could be something that we will work on in the agriculture committees. Economic development, we've been looking at a lot of issues that the governor vetoed two years ago, including the fight for 15 and getting a $15 minimum wage passed, uh, as well as paid family leave. Uh, again, all of these policies, along with universal health care, are actually economic development tools, as well as um, uh, social service reduction tools, uh, if we were to have an economy that actually worked for everybody and not just uh, the few. You know, people have seen since Reaganomics uh, not trickle down, but sponge up. And uh, at this point, it's, we've got to be reversing that trend, rebuild the middle class. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks and a lot of our ailments of society would be better off 
if people didn't have to work 60 and 70 hours just to try to pay the bills. And what are you doing to address education, one of the most important issues to millennials? Well, that's right. Uh, And there's multiple facets to that. One aspect of education, of course, is just the simple foundation of public education, which is one of the greatest uh, economic justice and equalizers that's out there, uh, started, you know, a couple centuries ago. Uh, but we've, we've been over, over testing and under educating our children for quite some time with the idea of critical thinking and being nimble and thinking and understanding the hows and whys, not just memorization. So for K through 12 education, I think there's some, some discussion that needs to happen there. I don't know how much of that, excuse me, will be resolved in these next two years, but those are the conversations that we have to have. The bigger one that I think you're probably alluding to is access to secondary education, uh, post-secondary education, and higher education. And I think there's a couple different factors that have to be addressed there. One is obviously just the fundamental cost of higher education. Uh, But the other is also valuing the opportunities that exist without four-year degrees. Not everybody uh, can or should be going to a four-year degree, accruing a bunch of debt, and then not having the job out there to afford them to pay that debt. There are plumbers and electricians and other technical jobs that are, that could get two-year degrees and pay well, and there's there's jobs that are unfilled right now for people who could fit into those jobs uh, with, with a decent middle-class wage of, you know, 30 40 even $50 an hour, uh, which is incredible wages compared to what a lot of people are working. And so we have to make sure... All the different jobs that are part of our society are socially valued and people don't feel like the only way that they can be a socially valued member of our society is through the four-year degree uh, with all the debt that it also brings. And what are you and your office doing right now to ensure that millennials stay involved in state and local politics? Well, we have been trying a couple of different things. Uh, One is that during the legislative session, I do a half-hour FaceTime town hall uh, every week during the legislature, focusing on a different topic that's happening in the state house, or highlighting an organization that's doing work around the state, whether it's mentoring groups, Alzheimer's groups, climate change groups, Black Lives Matter groups, to engage them in the conversation so they have a voice through my office to reach a much wider audience. And you know, sometimes people feel very isolated and alone, and when they see that there's other people talking about a topic, then they start to engage more and realize they're not alone. Uh, so just an empowerment factor is a big one. Secondly, I do an electronic newsletter. It's an email that goes out to uh, tens of thousands of Vermonters, and I always encourage folks to sign up for that. If they want to just get a couple-page update on what's happening at the State House, uh, they can get that by going to ltgov.vermont.gov, uh, Lieutenant Governor of Vermont, essentially, and sign up for that. It's easily deletable when it's too much in the inbox, but it's also a little window on what's going on not from a news perspective, but from a little more depth perspective on a topic with uh, links to more information. I've been doing a youth initiative uh, where, as lieutenant governor, I try to get around to schools all across the state, talking with young people, uh, which, you know, a younger generation than the the millennials, but um, both elementary and high school folks, many of whom can't vote yet. But I remind them that actually the census, which determines the legislative districts and size and the numbers, uh, includes those individuals. And as legislators, like I spoke of earlier, uh, sort of saying once you're elected, the label isn't what matters. You should reflect all of your constituents. Uh, 
if you are a younger person who can't yet vote, you still have a voice. You can still email, call, uh, communicate with your legislator. And frankly, how they treat you uh, is something that you could then remember in that next two or three years when you then get old enough to vote. And as, a, as an elected official, our job is to represent everybody. And if we treat people rudely or we dismiss them because they're young, well, then young people ought to rise up and, and change the outcome of the next election. And we've seen in this most recent election, young people's uh, participation rate greatly increase in the voting population. And that is extremely exciting to me and many others who are fighting for these issues that millennials care about and younger people care about. Uh, but uh, we haven't seen the voter turnout in those age groups to allow us to fight for those issues in the way that folks would want. And it's a downward spiral. Folks don't vote because they don't have people they think vote for their issues, and then their issues don't get addressed because the people elected don't care about those issues because those folks don't vote. And what we hopefully will see in this uh, next few election cycles is that that will have turned around, and we will be able to address these civil rights issues, these environmental justice issues, these economic justice issues. Because if young people vote in the 50 and 60% numbers that older people vote, then game over as far as the right-wing dominance of our political system. And what we are now seeing is sort of like a tiger back into a corner. The right-wing uh, end of the spectrum, where right now in Wisconsin and Michigan, they're throwing up ridiculous laws to change the power structure. These are last-minute frantic attempts to hold on to something that, frankly, is slipping out of their grasp, no matter what they do right now. And if, and if people vote in these kinds of numbers and even more, uh, that we will not return to the horrors that we've experienced over the last couple, six or eight years, and we include the Senate, uh, ever again. And lastly, how can folks engage with you and where can they find you online? Sure. Uh, well, I've got a Lieutenant Governor Facebook page. I've got a Lieutenant Governor website. Uh, and I've also, it's a personal Twitter account, but I do a lot of politics through it. Uh, Dave Zuckerman VT. Um, and so uh, folks can engage in all those ways. From a constituent response perspective or if people want to reply, it's still best to go through the website and send an email request that uh, we would then respond to because it gets a little chaotic trying to respond to people in three or four different venues when, honestly, my whole office is two people, me and my chief of staff. And so we try to redirect uh, Twitter outreach and Facebook outreach to the lieutenant governor's website so that uh, we can manage the, uh, the wonderful correspondence that we have, uh, manage it just a little bit better. So uh, those are some of the ways, uh, along with those FaceTime videos, which you can find links to from uh, the Lieutenant Governor website as well. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Lieutenant Governor, for coming onto the podcast today. We'd love to catch up with you again during the legislative session and see what progress you've made. Well, we'd be happy to do that. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And it's uh, great to sort of meet you through the ether. Yeah, we appreciate it. And lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe on iTunes, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.